All right, guys, it is 6.30. So hopefully you, uh, sorry about it. You are welcome to, uh, today we do not have to flip the tables. Uh, we have our men's prayer breakfast. It'll be up here. We'll send out some information here before Saturday. But um, uh, that'll be on Saturday morning in this room so we can leave the table. So if you guys want to continue discussion, Matt, after, uh, after we conclude at 7, feel free to hang out. For a little while, we don't have any rush. Um, there are no women's Bible studies today. We got the corn maze tonight, so today is an easy day. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, got some important things to cover, um, but let me pray over this time. Father, uh, now as always, Father, we ask for you to be with us. Uh, would you guide uh, me as I try to bring illumination to some important things playing out in these chapters? Father, would your word be what is uh, most loud in our ears? Father, would would your word that's living and active, uh, able to divide us, able to expose us, Father, able to correct us and train us and equip us. Uh, it's profitable for equipping us and making us full and complete. Would, would your word do all those things this morning um, as another good dose of, of uh, divine work through your word uh, that happens day in and day out as we, as we look to it? So. Uh, be with us as we as we study. Be with us as we talk, and um, we we give this time to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I want to start off with, um, as always, uh, a quick overview of our themes, our big five themes that we're tracking. Uh, remember, our goal is one of our goals uh, with this time is to, as much as possible, get the Book of Acts in your bones. There's 66 books of the Bible, and we want you to know at least one, uh, what it's about. You know, when you're Many years from now, when you're older, when, when you uh, happen to, to stumble into an Acts study again, I want you to know what Acts is about. So the themes, uh, anytime you're studying a book of the Bible, paying attention to the themes, that's how you're going to get the big ideas of, of what the author's trying to do, what the book's about. So uh, from week one, we've been exploring five themes. Anybody know what they are? Anybody have them from memory? Anybody can name them? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's the theme of everything. Good, good answer, Matt. Yeah, Holy Spirit. The works of the Holy Spirit. That's one of them. Huge one. Anything else? Witnessing. Witnessing of Christ. Yes, that's a, the second one. The church. Yes, development of the church. Establishment of the church in the early days. Salvation. Yes, the historical salvation. The gospel fitting in with the Old Testament and the early church very clearly made. Uh, and this is actually a big one in this week. You know, didn't, didn't disconnect Christ from the faith of the Jews. He was deeply uh, integrated with the Jewish faith. And the fifth one? Getting up early. Getting up early, no. Uh, evangeliz evangelization of the nations, the Great Commission. So the gospel going forth from Jerusalem uh, to the ends of the earth. We're going to see that playing out, especially in part two of the book, but uh, keep your eyes on it. Uh, real quickly, you see all of these this week. Uh, Holy Spirit shows up once again doing dramatic miracle with this healing of the, of the lame man. Um, you also see this incredible moment at the end of the chapter where the room where they're praying is, is shaken. Uh, the Greek words mean what they say in English. I don't even know what that means. I'm uh, assuming earthquake, physical shaking is the only way I know how to interpret those words. But, but clearly a movement of the Spirit there. He's referenced as filling them once again as they're praying for boldness there at the end of chapter 4. Um, you also see again, I just want to point it out, in, in chapter 4 verse 25, you see... Uh, uh, Luke pointing to Peter, affirming the Holy Spirit as the one who 
wrote the scriptures. He spoke through David. So just once again, inspiration of scripture is not a new doctrine. This isn't something we've developed in, in the, you know, the last 2,000 years. This is what the early church believed, that the Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, David wrote some of it. Yes, Moses wrote some of it. Yes, you have Ezra and Nehemiah and these different authors who are, who are uh, uh, putting things forward in writing for the church to hold, but it's the Holy Spirit who writes Scripture. Uh, so once again, Holy Spirit, big theme there. Uh, witnessing, another huge uh, chapter of development in the witnessing of Christ by the church. Peter preaches another huge sermon um, after this, this lame man is healed. Uh, then he preaches a second sermon to the religious leaders there in chapter 4 when he's put on trial, him and John taken before uh, the, the chief priests and all the leaders. Um, and then again, at the end of the chapter, you see, you know, they're, they're afraid. They're experiencing persecution for the first time, so they pray for boldness. And you see there in, in verse 31 of, of chapter 4, the, the Holy Spirit fills them and they continue to witness about Christ. They continue to go forth. So, and, and again, I've mentioned this several times, but the Holy Spirit and witnessing go you know, hand in hand throughout this entire book. The work of the Holy Spirit is to empower the church for witnessing. And every single miracle that you're seeing play out uh, it is directly tied to a huge witnessing moment that will follow. So I know it, it's um, the Holy Spirit is such a dominant player in the book of Acts that when you study it, it's easy to long for these kind of works to happen in our day, uh, even to get confused about like, where is the Holy Spirit now? Is it does even, you know, it does even exist if we're not seeing these kind of miracles in our day. Um, well, don't, don't forget and don't discount the fact uh, that this was the early church being established for the first time. The Holy Spirit was definitely moving miraculously, but he was doing so not just to, to you know, so it would be exciting for the church. He was doing it to establish the church and, and let them grow. So uh, Holy Spirit and witnessing go together. Uh, the church, development of the church, major stuff. I'm going to focus on that in the teaching time, so I'll skip that for now. Uh, salvation history, I do want to just touch on this before we jump into the teaching time. Uh, big development this week. Did you notice uh, how clearly Peter connects Jesus to the Old Testament in both of his sermons that are, that are preached here? Uh, he clearly says that, that Jesus is the servant of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He clearly uh, you know, says in, in uh, 17 through 25, sort of the second half of that first sermon, that the prophet that Moses was referring to, that one day a new prophet would come like Moses, is Jesus. Uh, you know, in, in the second one, when he's talking about um, with, with the religious leaders, this the reference to Psalm 118, the stone that was rejected has become the capstone. It's Jesus. So just, I, wa I want that to be clear in your mind. The early church did not view Christianity as a disconnect from Judaism. In fact, for them, it was Judaism. Uh, it took a little while for them to be called Christians. It took a little while for this new movement to even have a name. They started calling it the way. You're going to see that show up in the book of Acts in the days coming forward. But for them, this was not a change. This was just a fulfillment they didn't expect of all the Old Testament prophecies that were pointing. But, but I just want you to see there a lot of uh, theological development connecting Christ with the Old Testament. Um, and you clearly see he's the Messiah. Uh, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but him. You know, a strong theological development with salvation connected with Christ. Um, and then the last theme, evangelization of the nations. There's really only one minor reference here. Look at verse uh, 26 of chapter 3, if you will. Uh, end of the first sermon that Peter gives to the big crowd, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. That key word first. 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, sort of our, our theme verse for the whole book of Acts. You, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, uh, fill you with power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, ends of the earth. Um, there's this progression of the gospel, but it did come to the Jews first. Uh, but even you know, Peter referencing that, it's, that it came to them first is him acknowledging that, that he understands um, that the gospel is to go forth beyond Jerusalem, beyond the Jews. So, uh, again, the gospel will go forth to the nation. So with that, let's zero in on the church. Uh, again, Book of Acts is, is such a rich history of the development of the church. I want to keep our eyes upon it. We're still here in the early days, and I just want to, you know, as much as possible, help us see what's playing out with them. So uh, three major points for us to talk through. The first one, um, the church continues to pray. I want you to notice, I don't want you to miss the incredible emphasis on prayer that continues to play out in this book. I know we've studied this and looked at this in weeks past, but I I want you to see it again this week. I know it's easy for all of our attention and excitement to zero in on this miracle of the lame man being healed, uh, but pay attention to the context of when this miracle shows up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m., uh, this is after uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, after the, the, the big moments of chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're still praying. The early church from the very beginning established prayer as one of the highest priorities of what they did together. When Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come, what did they do for those 10 days between when He departed and uh, when the day of Pentecost happened? They gathered and they prayed in the upper room. Here we are in the upper room. That'll be fun uh, to pray on, on Saturday morning uh, as, as the men of our church. But, but they devoted themselves to prayer right from the beginning. Well, then the Holy Spirit shows up. We studied this last week. The day of Pentecost happens. What, when does it show up? When, when does that moment happen? In the midst of their prayer. They're, they're praying together. God does this am- amazing thing. Chapter 2 ends, though. And have they given up on prayer? Have they gotten to work? You know, Jesus said, you'll... You'll, you'll stay here until the Holy Spirit comes, but then you'll be witnessing. Have they, have they said, okay, it's time to stop praying and start doing now? No, they're end of chapter 2. Look back at, at verse 42. They continue to devote themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, breaking of bread, and to the prayers. This, this early church was just dedicated daily to praying together. Such a, a rigorous focus on prayer playing out. And you see it in chapter 3 as well. It starts with them going to, to pray the Holy Spirit absolutely moves and shows up, does this amazing miracle. But how does it end as well? Chapter, you know, end of chapter 4, where, where we finished our studies this week. They're praying once again. So just don't miss it. The, the church, without any doubt, this is a praying church, a church devoted to prayer. Perhaps the most you know, uh, singular action that we can describe them as we study these first few chapters is, is a church of prayer. Yes, the Holy Spirit is working miracles. Uh, yes, they are witnessing to the gospel. Yes, they're devoted to the scriptures. I'm not saying the, the preaching of the word and the studying of the word wasn't central in their lives. It, it definitely is referenced throughout, but without a doubt, what they gave themselves to again and again and again and again and again, day after day after day after day was praying. And I think that's supposed to hit us. I think that it's not unintentional that, um, that that's so prevalent and visible in the early church. And I think in, in the ways that we evaluate our lives against the early church, I think this should be an area where we allow some conviction to happen. You know, what role does 
prayer play in your own life? What role does uh, prayer play in the life of our church? Uh, and it's easy to be like, well, Pastor Brian, that seems like a question for you. You know, you're, you're the pastor. Um, you're one of the pastors. Um, and I'm not discounting that that is a, a question that I'm deeply convicted of right now. Um, and it is a question for, for us as pastors and as elders to be contemplating. But it, it's also easy for us to, as, as church members to assume that the church is just the leaders. But, but the Bible is clear. We're the church. So I'm not, I'm not discounting that, that we as leaders have a role. But we as the church called Emmaus have a role in making sure that prayer is central in our lives. You know, it, it's, not, um, it's not supposed to be uh, missing. It's not supposed to be a transition moment but in the service. You know, it, it's, it's, it's pivotal. The early church depended on the Spirit, um, and I think we're meant to be uh, convicted here. You know, it's, it's so easy when you study Acts to just long, you know, be stirred up in longing for this stuff to happen in our day. You know, we want to see these miraculous healings play out with, with people in our own lives. We want to see God show up and, and just dramatically in a moment take some brokenness and make it healed. I can't tell you, you know, as I, I was preparing for this and I was thinking down my own prayer list, the things that I'm praying for, broken marriages in our church right now, uh, diseases in our church right now. And I can't tell you the, the, um, the longing I have to see broken legs be walking you know, in people's lives. I want to see the Holy Spirit move like this. Um, I want to see these kind of conversions. I want to see this kind of mass change happen in, our, in the church. You know, you study Acts and those longings are appropriate and they're good to be stirred up in your heart. But don't miss what the church is doing when all this stuff is playing out. They're praying. They're devoted to prayer. And I don't think, I don't think that's disconnected. I think the Holy Spirit, His work among us, is directly connected to our prayerfulness. Um, we're meant to see that. I, I want to read a quote. This is from um, uh, J.C. Ryle, a uh, great uh, pastor um, in the 1800s over in Liverpool. Um, uh, wrote a lot of really good books. His, his book, Holiness, is one of the, the great classics that I'd recommend to you if you've never read it. Um, but he also wrote a book called Practical Religion where he just tries to describe what's the Christian life supposed to look like. Um, he's got chapters on the, the role of the Bible in our lives, the role of prayer in our lives. And in, in his chapter on prayer, really good quote where, where he, um, I just want to share it. I'll read it to you guys. Um, Reader, I do not deny that a man may pray without heart and without sincerity. I do not for a moment pretend to say that the mere fact of a person praying proves, uh, did I get that right? The mere fact of a person praying proves everything about his soul. As in every other part of religion, so it is in this. There's plenty of deception and hypocrisy even in things like prayer. But I do say this, that not praying is a clear proof that a man is not yet a true Christian. He cannot really feel his sins. He cannot love God. He cannot feel himself as a debtor to Christ. He cannot long after holiness. He cannot desire heaven. He's yet to be born again. He has yet to be made a new creature. He may boast confidently of election, grace, faith, hope, and knowledge, and deceive ignorant people. But you may rest assured, it is all vain talk if he does not pray. And I say furthermore that of all the evidences of real work of the Spirit, a habit of hearty, private prayer is one of the most satisfactory that can be named. A man may preach from false motives. A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest. The Lord himself 
has set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion. Prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How can a man live and not breathe? Uh, how a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension. How a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension too. You know, he, he's just commenting there on the, the absolute um, you know, pivotal role that prayer pl- plays in our life and, and the reality that maybe the most sincere part of our faith is, is reflected in our prayer life. So, you know, let Acts do its good conviction. Let that quote do its good conviction. You know, don't be afraid to look squarely at the question, what role is prayer playing in my life? What role is prayer playing in our church? I think we have to look at that question if we're going to make the changes that are necessary. So the church is continuing to devote itself to prayer. That's the first one. Second one here, the church continues to witness and grow. The church continues to witness and grow. Again, one of our major themes. Um, You know, last week we saw an incredible moment of growth in the church. The church started as how many people? Originally 12. You get up to 120 there in the upper room uh, on the day of Pentecost. You know, it's it's the brothers, the early disciples, and clearly the 11. Well, now the 12, Matthias had joined them, but... um, uh, 120 is how big it was. And on one day, day of Pentecost, the church just explodes to 3,000 people. It's magnificent. You, you read it in, in chapter 2, what we studied last week, and it's uh, really fun to see. And how did it happen? Exactly like the pattern we've been seeing. Holy Spirit does a dramatic work. The church witnesses and people repent and believe. This week, same exact pattern playing out. They're going up to pray, just like we talked about, and this great miracle happens. There's this, uh, we don't have his name, but this man who's lame, we're told he's been lame for over 40 years, so he's, let's say he's 45. Uh, and, and every day, he's carried out from wherever his house is and laid at the temple at the same gate where he begs for alms from all the people. Uh, clearly, contextually, as you read this book, everybody knew him. They, they recognized him. You know, this was uh, a, a familiar guy among the people in Jerusalem. Um, and he's been lame from birth. It clearly says that. So this is, this is a physical disability. This is a, you know, you've seen people who have, you know, malformations in their legs. His legs and his ankles, uh, his feet and his ankles, it says in verse 7 of chapter 3, um, don't work right. And uh, he asks, he sees Peter and John, and he asks for money, but he's clearly not looking at them. I think that's really interesting. He is, there's some sort of shame in there. If you're not, you know, you're asking for alms, but you won't look at the person. Because Peter and John ask for his gaze, it says. Uh, which is just, you know, just some interesting things I want you to pay attention to and how, the, how this plays out. Um, and Peter and John, when they, they ask for his gaze and they say this incredible line, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Did you notice what happens after that? The man does not rise up and walk. Which I just, think about, think about the guy, you know, you've been lame for, your legs don't work. It's not that you, you know, are bad at walking. It's, you don't have ankles and feet that can support you standing up. You have to be carried everywhere. And a guy tells you to look at him and tells you to uh, stand up. You know, I would be like this guy. I wouldn't stand up. Um, But miraculously, uh, you know, Peter tells him to. And then grabs him by the arm. You know, there's, there's faith at work in Peter. I actually think, you know, Peter talks about it, uh, what is it, verse, whatever, that it was faith in the name of Jesus that, that healed this man. I have a huge question, which is, whose faith? <laughs> it doesn't tell us, but I, I would argue that it was Peter's faith, um, that it was John's faith, that, that 
Peter grabbing his hands and, and pulling him up. Um, but regardless, incredible, you know, ex nihilo creation miracle happens. The Holy Spirit present there somehow turns malformed feet and ankles into working feet and ankles. I don't know, did he create cartilage? Did God just, you know, out of nothing, just like in, in Genesis 1, did he create legs that work? I, I don't know how it happened. I'd, I'd love to ask God someday to sort of replay that on the big screen in heaven um, so we can see it. But, uh, but an amazing miracle plays out. Work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the, the church is involved in that. But this is, don't, don't marvel at at Peter and John. In fact, Peter makes it really clear, it's not us. You know, we're not the ones to be marveled at. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit doing that. But look what the, the church does. Power of the Spirit comes down, and then the church does their role. They witness. They, you know, Peter gives this great sermon in, in chapter 3 there. It's not by his power. It's the power of God that's done this. His name, the name of Jesus, is repeated four or five times there. It's his, his name that matters. He's the author of life. He's the holy and righteous one. You killed him. It's time to repent. God will forgive your sins. Blot them out. Great. Uh, that, that word in, um, what verse is it? Blot them out. Uh, verse 19. That, that Greek word blotted out doesn't show up. Very, it's five times in the New Testament. And it's the same one when, um, when uh, in, in Revelation it shows up twice where uh, John's talking about in heaven one day, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's blotted out. It's the same Greek word there. And it doesn't mean it's all gone. You know, the tears, what caused the tears happened in your life. But when God wipes away our tears, what is He doing? He's comforting us. He's covering it. He's removing it. He's taking away the pain of it. He's letting us, you know, rest in Him, still being able to see all that stuff. That's, I think that's the perfect description of what happens when we're forgiven of our sins. It's not like your past didn't happen. You know, it's not like God forgets that it happened. God's sovereign. He knows all. That's not really, that doesn't really compute in the, the concept of God's sovereignty, but he does uh, blot them out. It's, it, it, so they're wiped away. They're separated as far as the east is from the west. You know, that's, that's the message that they preach. It's the same message we preach today, repentance and belief. Um, and you get this, this, this great growth happens as a result of the church witnesses, and then they grow. Uh, it says 5,000 in verse uh, 4 of chapter 4. It says, Many people believe the number of the men were 5,000. So we can assume the first day, day of Pentecost, which gets all the glory in Acts, you get 3,000 conversions. Now, if, I don't know how long you know, has passed to chapter 3, but this is presumably a few weeks later, and now you have 10,000 people in one day, uh, assuming that there were women and children as well. Um, so the church has grown from how many? You know, you had, you had 12, and now a few weeks later, how many do we have? You know, 13,000 people. The upper room's not going to hold them anymore. You know, whatever place they are that's shaken in a few minutes, that's not the upper room anymore. But again, what I want you to see in all this, as the church is witnessing and growing, as you try to apply this to your life, you know, filtering out your longings, is the fact that we have a role and the Spirit has a role. We're not the Spirit. We can't create these miracle moments. That's up to Him. You know, we, we don't heal people like this unless the Holy Spirit's working like this. He does the big moments. He's a wind. He blows where He wills. Our role as the church is to sense the Spirit and then witness. And that's the question I want you to consider. We've talked about prayer in your life. I want you to consider how many times this week were you talking with people and you were nudged by the Spirit? That's, that's how witnessing plays out. The Spirit works and then we respond. So, Pay attention, men. Pay attention as you're at the grocery store, as you're uh, interacting with, with men in your workplace. When the Holy Spirit's you know, birthing a moment, don't pass it by. 
Don't ignore it. Don't look the other way. Witness. Proclaim Jesus. Proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. This is how the church grows. This is how, uh, how miraculous growth happens. The Holy Spirit's in charge of all the stuff that matters. And we just respond. We just are faithful with the, the pregnant moments He puts in our life. Um, the church witnesses and grows, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings that about. So uh, Spirit-led evangelism, I guess that's the, the big thing I'd encourage you to focus in on this week. Um, and in your life in general. Last one here, uh, the church begins to face persecution. So uh, when they finish this first sermon, um, and your questions, even your discussion time, I tried to bring this up because I think this is really profound. Uh, the Jews freak out, you know. This 13,000 person church in a matter of a few weeks is really threatening them. And you see it's just the captain of the temple and uh, some priests who come in arrest these men, but the next day at their trial, suddenly you have everybody who's anybody. You have rulers, elders, scribes, Caiaphas, Annas, John, Alexander, like the whole people have come together to try and like stop what's going on. They're, the Jewish people are not liking what's playing out here at all. Um, and, and what I want you to really pay attention, it's, it's mild persecution at this point. Like all they did was one night in jail, one arrest, one confinement, and it's just Peter and John. Um, Persecution is going to grow stronger in the days ahead. But in this persecution, I want you to see the contrast between the leaders of the Jews and the leaders of the church. You know, what, what would you say? I mean, I think this question was on your, at your tables. What would you say is most defining the leaders of the Jews in this moment? What are their actions showing? What's in their hearts? Anybody got an answer? What was that? Yeah, they're, they're threatened by these people. They want to hang on to their power. Uh, anything else anybody saw in them? Fear? Yeah. I'd say fear of man. I, th- I think that's the phrase that best describes uh, the Jewish leaders in this moment. Because even, and it's crazy how it plays out. They, they want to, like, punish these guys. They want to even, I think they want to kill these guys. They want to stop the movement. But they're so afraid of the crowds that they won't even, they become cowards in, because they're so afraid. There's so much people pleasers. They're so afraid of, of man. Even what they want, they won't do. Um, because they're so tied to people's opinions of them. And then contrast that with the disciples, with the, uh, Peter and, and John, the leaders of the church at this time. I think they're displaying just full, uh, in contrast to fear of man, they're, they're displaying confidence in God. Um, they are showcasing. And I wouldn't even, you know, the fear of God is, is a, a big theme in all of Scripture. I wouldn't even use that phrasing here. They don't seem afraid at all. They, feel, they seem confident. They have reasons to be afraid. They have a church of 13,000 people that was just birthed, and they're the leaders. It would be like, you know, Pastor Anson and me getting arrested tomorrow and being thrown in prison. It would be, disc- you know, there's reasons to be afraid as the church here in this moment. There's, there's fear that could be playing out. They could have just, you know, been silent in this moment, tried to get out of jail so they could get back to their flock. But they're not. They're bold in this moment. They proclaim Christ they, proclaim, they tell these leaders, you crucified him. You know, they're bold with these guys. They say no, salvation's in no one else. He's the stone that you rejected, and he's become the cornerstone. It's, it's a beautiful moment. Um, uh, but they, they show, they're demonstrating confidence in God without any question. Uh, and so I just want you to think about that. I think that's another point of application for us. You know, as you operate as a man in your job, which one are you more like? I mean, truly, when somebody shows up and threatens your power at work, you know, who, who do you react like? 
Are you more worldly-minded and, and living out sort of a people-pleasing heart, or are you able, like these, these men here, to demonstrate just a deep confidence in God um, that, that helps you guide your decisions and make your decisions? I, I think we're being uh, modeled something that's really practical in our lives, um, pushing out of fear of man into a confidence in God. Remember who this guy is who's saying all these bold words in Acts chapter 4. This is Peter who a few months ago, like not long ago, let's, let's assume best case scenario, this is 90 days post the crucifixion and resurrection. At the crucifixion, what was Peter doing? Three times to like little slave girls. He was, so, he was such a people pleaser. His heart reveled in what people thought of him. And power of God, the work of God has just transformed this dude. He's now has this rich confidence in God. So if you, like me, struggle with people pleasing, and just sort of care about what people think of you. There's hope. Hope, hope is in God. The hope is in the Spirit. Um, but we're seeing something modeled in here that I think we need to try to exemplify. So last thing there on your, your, your note sheet, three questions to consider, application for this week. Number one, how am I devoting my life to prayer? In your quiet time, in your own personal life, in your own prayer closet, you know, how, how are you talking to God daily? Number two, how am I following the Spirit and witnessing of Christ you know, how are you playing that role of sensing the spirit, spirit moments that He gives you to proclaim Jesus to those around you? And number three, how are my actions determined more by fear of man than confidence in God? And just let those questions simmer in you. I think those are the biggest um, places where I was convicted as I, as I studied this. Hopefully, there'll be some good things for us in that. Hope to see you guys at the corn maze tonight. Hope to see you uh, at a prayer breakfast on Saturday. If you're not signed up, today's the deadline. We're buying food. And getting all that ready. So uh, Saturday morning at 8 in this room is, is where we'll be to pray. It'll be in here. It did originally. We fit. There's, there's, uh, I feel like we'll get swallowed in the sanctuary. So we'll be up here unless a bunch of you sign up today. So um, I think we're good on the pre-help, but we may need some help flipping this room after the fact as we get ready for Sunday. So if you can stick around. We'll, we'll be done. We'll close things down by 9.30. But, uh, but if you can stick around for a few minutes and help us flip, that'd be great. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to be men of confidence in you. Lord, let us not be driven and, and determined by the, the winds of the people around us that can blow so fervently, so strong in our hearts, Father. Let us uh, rest in you, be men of prayer who rely on you, follow your spirit, and with confidence uh, proclaim your gospel to those around us who need it, Father. Look, give us eyes, eyes of our hearts, Lord, to sense where your spirit is leading. Uh, help us to identify, Lord, today and tomorrow and this week, the pregnant moments that you've put in front of us for us to witness to the gospel, Lord. It may not be a miracle of healing in, in somebody's legs. It might be. Maybe you want to do that work this week. But, uh, but I think week after week, you put pregnant moments in front of us, ordained by your spirit for us to witness to. So, so give us confidence, give us boldness to do it, to not be people pleasers, but to be bold proclaimers of your gospel. We love you, Lord. Lead us out. In your name we pray. Amen.